Hello and welcome back to This Septic Isle, the podcast that takes a look at some of the worst people in British history. We are continuing our examination of David Gill, the British Tiger King, and once again joining me is Geordie Paul. How are you doing, Geordie? Hi, I'm good. Once again, sort of been waiting with bated breath to come on and see what happens next. Uh, Every consecutive time it has just got worse and worse. So, you know, I'm sure you can take me to new depths today. That is what we're going for, both in the quality of our broadcasting output and in the behaviours of the people we speak about. Just a a slow downhill slide on two separate fronts. Well, uh, I look forward to seeing how low we can go. Excellent, excellent. I mean, yeah, so just as a, as a bit of a recap, you know, for... Uh, for those of us who joined us last time, David had his somewhat aborted bid at politics, narrowly failing to take a conservative seat on, on his local council and dropping out disillusioned shortly afterwards. We also looked at his um, romantic misadventures, a former Barrow rugby player, Richard Creary, stabbing him in the neck after Gil had a romantic liaison with his estranged wife. So uh, plenty of good stuff there. If you want to listen back to that one, if you haven't heard it, it might be worth listening to before getting into this week. But um, as I promised you last time, this is a bit of a a split pod. You know, there are some of the the funniest and daftest bits of Gil's self-promotion that we're going to be taking a look at. But before that, there is something which is quite serious. You know, I feel it's integral to his story. We we can't ignore it, but equally it's uh, maybe not as, as sort of as lighthearted and fun. So I suppose this would serve as a sort of trigger warning that what we're going to be talking about could be potentially quite distressing. So if you feel that it could affect you, it might be worth might be worth skipping forward. We'll put a link in the description as to, you know, when we get past this this part of the podcast. But if you are able to, I would recommend listening to it because it does give a, a more nuanced and valued view, view of events. And I feel it is a, a story worth worth telling in its entirety. So with that, We'll begin part three. Are you ready, Jordy? Yeah, ready and waiting. Yep. Sarah McClay was, by all accounts, a rather wonderful human being. One of those rare people who managed to fulfil their childhood dream. After completing a degree in conservation science, she went on to work with big cats. McClay described doing so as a privilege. And those who knew her talked of the love and enthusiasm she had for her work. As a young girl, she'd gone on a family trip to South Lake Zoo and fallen in love with the place, making it her goal to one day be part of the institution. By May 2013, she'd realised this ambition and had been at the zoo for two years and was responsible for the pair of Sumatran tigers that enchanted so many guests. Whilst carrying out a routine job in the tiger house, Macaulay was mauled to death by Padang, the male Sumatran. A visitor reportedly witnessed the incident and soon other staff members were racing towards the tiger enclosure to save their colleague. David Gill describes having to fire a rifle at Padang in order to make him retreat from McClay. So kind of just had to go straight into it, um, as yeah, was horrible. In many ways, almost inevitable when you, you run a dangerous institution of lack of safety, someone's going to die. Yeah, you know, there have been a lot of near misses so far. You know, this was bound to happen eventually. You know, you can only roll the dice so many times. You know, again, I feel it is, is telling in, in, in Gil's description of the incident. It's him on hand with a firearm driving the beast away. He can't stop this this drive to be the hero of the story. Mm. I mean, maybe I'm being a bit a bit harsh, but you know, it's it's it's. Don't worry, I was on hand and I had the gun. You know, just yeah. It's always you know a retrospective attempt at heroism. 
you know, and in this case, it, it was far too late. Yeah. Going on, you know, sort of looking at the, the aftermath of the incident, as we will be doing today, I feel it reveals a lot about the man's character, and we'll dive into that in a second. So the park was duly shut down for the rest of the day on the, the incident um, before opening its doors again the next morning. Naturally, Very quick. Yeah. I'd just like to point out that's incredibly quick. Yeah, I mean, in the interest of fairness, I'm loath to defend him, but you think, one, as a business, they don't make money, the animals don't eat, and again, we'll come on to that. And This is viewing it through the most generous possible lens. And, and two... It is, again, you need to keep something like this running. I do agree with you. It seems very hasty, but a defence can be made, albeit not a not wholly convincing one. But I've looked at sort of other incidents in sort of zoom mallings, and a, a, a quick reopening does tend to be sort of par for the course. Okay, so, it, you know, we may be able to say it's a scummy thing, but if it's an industry standard, it's not necessarily Gil being particularly bad. Yeah, as I feel Gil being particularly bad is very much coming. But um, okay. I would, I don't know. I mean, I completely understand your point of view on that. I would say it might be more of a, a criticism of the industry. But again, you could say horrible as it is, that person's already dead. You know, something like this needs to keep going. I don't know how much weight you mm. want to give to that argument. But um, I feel it is, is definitely one that would be made. So naturally, there was a huge level of media interest and a clamour for comment. In the face of this, David Gill's first response was to follow his tried and tested method of crisis handling and immediately establish that whatever had happened could not possibly have been his or the zoo's fault. In a particularly disgusting move, he laid the blame squarely at the door of the victim. Gill told the BBC, We have very strict protocols and procedures for working with big cats, but it seems she failed to follow the correct procedures. For inexplicable reasons, she opened a door and walked into the enclosure. We will never know why she entered without telling anyone. There was no reason for her to go in there. In a televised interview, he doubled down and told a reporter that without warning, McClay had undone three locks, a padlock and two bolts and stepped into the cage of Padang. If you uh, wouldn't... Yeah, sorry, go on. Go yeah, on. I, sorry, I just can't believe any of what I'm hearing. Well, yeah. I mean... This is her day-to-day job. It'd be one thing if he was even arguing, you know, she did what she was doing normally, but like an accident happened. But to say, you know, she'd done this job for two years and then suddenly, you know, one day decided I'm going to do something incredibly risky when, you know, there was no warning signs or anything. It's just so disingenuous. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speculate about what exactly his motives were in doing this other than to avoid blame, which I feel is, you know, not an unreasonable inference to make. It's it's just it's awful. It's shameful. It's cowardly. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, we we don't know what happened exactly. Well, no, we, 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 we do. Will. We will we will find out exactly what happened. You know, without giving too much of a spoiler, I would just say try and remember what Gil said and see how it lines up with what you're going to hear. But you think this woman has just died, and as her family and friends turn on the television and see her employer saying that it was solely her own fault. I mean, what a slap in the face to those people. Yeah, really, this is sort of, you know, the the thoughts and prayers time, not the inquest time. I mean, for me, it's, I might seem like an emotive example to pick, but it's like the sun victimising Liverpool fans in the aftermath of Hillsborough. It's the exact same principle, albeit on a smaller scale, but 
at a time of sort of mass grief and mourning, they feel to put the boot into the victims is the right thing to do. Yeah. As I said, it, I feel it speaks so highly of the character or lack thereof that the man has. It's very revealing, yeah. So, if you're wondering if the incident laid a burden on Gil, then you may wish to take the following into consideration. As Sarah McClay lay dying in hospital and zoo staff scrambled to find a way to contact her mother, South Lakes did not keep the details for next of kin. David Gill did not stay around to help, but instead went on a jaunt to a medieval reenactment weekend in Derbyshire. God. Yeah. That, that is just dreadful. It, you know, it's just a, such a lack of concern for really anyone but himself. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's quite, you know, an active act. And I can get that, you know, people handle grief differently and, you know, there's there's no right way to grieve. And if it was like David locked himself in his room and was drinking heavily, but well, maybe it's not the healthiest coping mechanism, but it would show it had, you know, some kind of effect. Yeah, not just like going and hanging out somewhere, you know, pursuing his hobbies. Dressed as a fucking knight, like... Yeah, also, just by the way, you know, sad story and everything, what a ridiculous, like, hobby for the zoo owner to have. You know, who does he think he is? Yeah, I mean, at every turn, when reading about this man, you find, something, yeah, you find something new to find contemptible in him. Yeah. And I, would very, I very much want to clarify, I'm not saying it's contemptible, going to dress up as a night on your weekends. I think it's a bit odd, but you know what? You do you. If that makes you happy, who am I to judge? It's the picture he's painting himself playing with these animals, you know, and then also doing this reenactment. He's got a real thing of, you know, danger, adventure, you know, almost an obsession with it. Showing off how powerful he is. Mm. And then almost, you know, you could say an extent of that, this, this media handling strategy of I'm in control. Despite all these things that are happening, I'm in control and none of them are my fault. Yeah, it's a real duality there. Yeah. Uh, awful. Now, Sarah McClay's family were not willing to just accept this version of events, and neither were the local constabulary. A police investigation soon revealed that Gill's account of Sarah undoing a series of locks to enter the cage was simply and categorically not true. Like, it just could not have happened. There is, there is no way this version of events is based in fact at all. Instead, okay, so it took him all of five minutes to lay the blame at her door, but yeah, it, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, instead, it appeared that rather than her going to Padang, the tiger came to her and was able to do so due to a faulty mechanism on what was supposed to be self-locking doors designed to ensure the safety of keepers when they entered the tiger house to perform their duties. Now, these self-locking doors were designed and built by David Gill. Of course. So he knows the inner layer of the tiger house and how this could have happened and the patterns of the locks. So, yeah, there's no naivety there. I think there is very little naivety in a lot of the things that he does. I think he is a fairly polished operator. It's just a lack of care. Yeah. You know, just a, a, a selfishness that staggers. Quite, fr- quite frankly, um, you know, I feel that perhaps at the beginning there were some signs of, of well-meaning. I feel by this stage, you know, that thoroughly evaporated. He's lost any goodwill you could possibly hope to extend to him by now. Oh, yeah. You know, like the, the sort of 
well-meaning amateur animal feed salesman has gone. You know, this mm. is a, a sort of hard-nosed, pragmatic, frequently ethically dubious individual. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the doors have failed. McClay had been in the nighttime room known as the Dark Den with Padang outside in his enclosure. When the failed lock meant she suddenly found herself in an enclosed space with a tiger. I could try and describe the horror of what happened next, but her brother Stephen puts it in terms that I could not possibly hope to surpass. When interviewed, he told the BBC, when I think about the manner of Sarah's death, what makes me most upset is thinking about how scared she would have felt. It's not like dying of an illness when you have time to come to terms with it, or a car crash when you're dead the minute you hit the ground. She would have seen a tiger coming towards her in an area where she thought she was alone. She didn't die instantly. She would have felt every bite or scratch or whatever it did. Well, that, well yeah, that is just dark. He's know. right, though. And like you said, oh, no, he's absolutely right. You know, it's this awful piece of, sort of pure honesty and grief. And yeah, to, sort of have, to have that knowledge, I can't imagine no. how horrible it must have been for her family. Uh, and Gil just doesn't care. Or not enough to take any responsibility or give any honest version of events, certainly. It's a testimony to the incredible character of the Maclay family that even in their darkest moments of grief, they refused to give in to hatred. Sarah's mother, Fiona, spoke out against calls for Badang to be put down and refused to blame the animal for her daughter's death. An inquiry was called, with one of the first findings being that Gill's version of events would have been impossible. The subsequent inquest heard from witness Gary Bell about how McClay had been going about her duties when he saw the tiger enter the den and leap upon McClay, who had her back turned. In the end, a narrative verdict was recorded, and I looked this up because I wasn't 100% sure on the meaning, so just for clarity, a narrative verdict is one where the cause of death is given as a factual statement of how the death occurred without attributing that cause to an individual. More justice than was initially served, insofar that yeah. uh, this falsehood was allowed to stand, uh, you know, was not allowed to stand, sorry, but one of just saying this is what happened, not why or who's responsible. Yeah, there's not, yeah, it's not true justice. Yeah, and, you know, I think, again, you know, that any investigation undermines this. It, it, it does, again, speak to the arrogance of Gil, you know, that I can just do this and it'll be fine. I can just say this and they will believe me. And when you come up against legal professionals and police officers and people who do this for a living, he's routinely outmaneuvered. But yet the lesson does not sink home. No, he's clearly like not as clever as he likes to think he is. And I'm not going to sort of sit here and psychoanalyze him because I think it's, it, it's wrong to do that and I have no training in that field. But there does seem to be a distinct lack of acceptance of consequences and empathy towards others. What, read into that what you will. Mm. This repeated failure to understand that that people with professional skill sets, people with a bit about them, just will not fall for his bullshit. People in that group are the McClay family. In the aftermath, they spoke to the press about how there were still unanswered questions around what happened to Sarah, but that they would wait for Barrow Council's investigation to conclude before commenting further. Again, just wonderful people, you know, measured, restrained, yeah. sense, like, empathetic. Like They've really shown themselves to be, you know, great people. 
And yet, you know, the, the horror is it's terrible. Man, man, it's really taking a huge part of their lives. It, it is just shocking the the manner in which he thinks he can get away with this. I know we keep coming back to this point, but I think it's important to, to establish that pattern is existing quite firmly by now. And that in this case, he is taking on a group of people who are morally principled, organized, determined. And I, I think he's not come up against that before. Mm. So that investigation they were waiting for subsequently revealed that there were multiple health and safety breaches including a separate incident where another keeper had been injured falling off a ladder whilst preparing food for the cats and took the decision to bring prosecution against both the zoo and Gill himself. The case took a while to resolve, but eventually, in June 2016, a conclusion was reached. The zoo had ended up pleading guilty to health and safety breaches and was to be fined £297,500 as well as footing the £150,000 bill for prosecution costs, with the case also establishing that the fault for Sarah's death was not her own. So you're saying you're looking for justice. That's yeah, a little that's bit really... more like justice for me. Not very satisfying, though. No, I think, true. You know, a fine, seriously? In some ways, there's someone like him. It's not so much the money, it's the establishment in a court of law that what he has said is just not true. Yeah. You know, that's there on the record forever, that you are responsible for this. That the forced confrontation of responsibility, I think, will have hit him more, because that is what the best part of half a million pounds. Rich as he was, he can't just shrug that off. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely not. Again, you know, there's there's resolutions I, I think would have been more suitable, particularly in you know, reviewing his suitability to own dangerous animals and manage a facility with them but it's it's a start it is an occasion where he faces real consequences you know once again and this is beginning to become a bit of a thing yeah you know it it is like you said it's better than nothing well that and the fact as well this case was quite highly publicized i mean this was recalling this was what made me think of gil after watching tiger king and inspired me to start writing the podcast so you know, it stuck in my mind for, for the best part of nearly 10 years ago. I think it also, the impression I got, that local goodwill which enabled him to stand as a political candidate. I feel this was the first significant chip out of that. Yeah, that's going to start, you know, drying up a bit. You were negligent and someone died. You can you can say what you like, but that is the case. Yeah, especially, um, obviously, if she was working there, she was must have been a part of the community as well. I'm I'm fairly sure her family is Scottish, so I don't I honestly don't know how involved she was in the local area, but I think it's just you know it's a significant local institution, and even if you didn't know Sarah personally, it would have been somewhere you might have taken your children or, or you know gone you know gone on a day out, and to think of you know somewhere which is this big local respected facility and played a part in a lot of people's lives, I'd imagine sort of having happy memories there to taint it with the knowledge that this has happened. I mean, I have happy memories going there with my parent as a child, but sort of the more I wrote this, the more I was like, what were we oblivious to? Yeah. So, you know, I think it really, this hit him not just in the wallet. I think this, this will have, uh, this is impacted in other ways as well. Unfortunately, the, the direct charges against Gil were dropped, but even so it was a result that provided some vindication. Sarah, her partner, 
and her family are and were decent people who deserve far better than the entirely avoidable tragedy that befell them. And then just to wrap this off, you're ready for this. The latest on the matter is that the zoo have offered to set up a memorial in Sarah's name, something that her God. mother has called inappropriate. I think inappropriate is the nicest way to describe that. I have so much that, respect for her mother. Like, yeah. seems like an incredible woman. That's almost antagonistic. Yeah. Fighting so hard to blame Sarah. It gets proven in a court of law it wasn't Sarah's fault. So your response is, oh, we'll do a memorial then. Yeah, and I think it's just a, the impression I get is it's a cheap and shoddy attempt at a PR job. Oh, yeah, yeah. she died, but look at us, aren't we great? Yeah, not, not a very good attempt at a PR job. I think, you know, that's maybe one of the most transparent things. Does, does anything in this story make you feel that the people running South Lakes are uh, masters of public relations? No, it's for, you know, to be masters of anything. Except yeah. maybe charming, you know, odd Australian politicians. Yeah, fringe loons. Yeah, like, just go back to doing that. Make that your grift. Make the money from that. Hitting they, on teenagers, hitting on teenagers, and allying yourself with, uh, you know, morally questionable politicians. What a skill set! Yeah, do you think they're know. endorsable on LinkedIn? <laughs> <laughs> I might try and find endorse David Gill. <laughs> that, that's I mean, not, you know, I wouldn't personally associate myself. I'll say, I'll say this for David: he's one of the best hitters on of teenagers that I have ever seen. <laughs> There's no one in the business quite like him. Yeah. When he's not hitting on people who were just children just a few years ago, then he's uh, he's allying himself with controversial figures who've lined up with the Proud Boys, and he's great at that too. <laughs> His name is forever in the records of the Australian Parliament. So, you know, what have you done lately? Rhino shooting. He is top-notch at rhino shooting. I know it's a large target, but... Oh, David... So, yeah, I mean, that's the Mackay story. You know, I think if you're listening, you can probably tell we, we tried to handle that um, with as much sort of dignity without, you know what I mean, without wanting to sort of joke or make sort of snidey comments. You know, it, it's it's a horrible episode. Um, her and her family come across as, quite frankly, very admirable people. And we, we wanted to sort of treat that as it deserved. I understand it probably was quite a difficult listen. But equally, I think it is, it's so important and core to the, uh, the events surrounding South Lake Zoo and David Gill's reign there that it's impossible to miss it out. Now, I know these podcasts are meant to be a bit more fun. And the second half of it, uh, if you're only just tuning in now, this is where we're coming to, but the second half of it, a little bit more lighthearted. There's still some moments of horrifying stuff, but we've also got some, some absolute gillisms that we we think you might enjoy a bit so you know don't don't worry it's not all going to be uh as emotionally harrowing as what you've just heard so same goes for you geordie you know uh, i know this is this has not been the fun joyful experience i promised you when i <laughs> when i offered you a co-hosting <laughs> position are you ready for the uh for the next part of the the david gill chapter i'm looking forward to it getting a bit more cheery yeah, so I know there's something that you've been looking forward to will be coming up soon. So uh, yeah, no spoilers, but uh, you you know what I mean. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so 
The one lesson that Gill seems to have taken from this entire affair appears to have been the realisation that not all publicity is good publicity. This is something that would have been useful a year earlier when, in celebration of his 51st birthday, he self-published an autobiography. Nine Lives, One Man's Insatiable Journey Through Love, Life and Near Death. Thoughts on the title? God. I mean, as ever, it's a lot. Um, near death is maybe, you know, not the right words. You can scratch out the near. It just didn't happen to be him. If you're an employee or an animal, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and also boasting about the whole love situation. It's very... It was almost farcical. Don't worry, it gets so much better. Now, it is still available on Amazon. Tempting as it was, I decided against buying it for now to read for this episode. I am fascinated to get a deeper insight into this. But equally, the idea of giving Gil my money is quite troubling, because I don't want to find out you've paid £5 and that's gone towards him firing a rocket launcher at a manatee. Yeah, I'd like to read it too, but yeah, I would feel a bit bad knowing that I was giving this man anything. Having said that, if our plan to launch a Patreon channel goes ahead, I will put time and resources into buying a copy secondhand so I'm not directly funding him, and we will read extracts and record it for you. So if you are interested in that, please let me know, because, Geordie, I'm sure you'd be up for that as well, like getting a... <laughs> Absolutely. The David Gill deep dive. <laughs> just I just pick, you know, random pages and read them. Oh, no, I'm going cover to cover, mate. Like I, I don't think we can leave anything out. <laughs> I'm almost concerned what that would do to us. Would we come out the other side also mental? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm quite worried that the Patreon money would go towards, like, you'd stop hearing from the podcast and you just hear about the weird man in Newcastle with the tiger in his shed. But, you know, I'm, it's a risk I'm willing to take. The occasional gunshots. <laughs> Jesus. Now, just to round out the image of the book, I don't know if you want, uh, if you've if you've Googled it, if you want to have a little look at, at what we're dealing with here. But the the cover art shows Gil dressed in a safari suit and bush hat and holding a tiger cub. So have you have you found a picture of it? I'm just bringing it up now. All uh, right, no worries. I mean, it very much does scream out Great White Hunter. I'm not gonna lie; I haven't seen a photo of him before. He looks very boring. Yeah, he's not what you ex- He just looks like a guy. Yeah, he like very nondescript white man but, who yeah, happens yeah. to be holding a tiger cub. If you saw his face in the street, you wouldn't, you know, you, no, wouldn't, you wouldn't think twice of it. Just, just a bloke. I certainly, you know, he's certainly not the kind of person that if my estranged wife started dating him, I'd feel dreadful about. I'd almost feel like I'd won that breakup, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, bearing in mind the fact that you're, um, what, the best part of 20 years younger than him, your ex partners are right in his age bracket, so. <laughs> yeah he's he's just a guy he looks like a geography teacher to be honest the book nine lads looks like it could be a geography book <laughs> you come back from term and he geography teach other mental breakdown and self-published <laughs> <laughs> now would you like to know how the amazon blurb describing the book reads I would very much like that. Right, I'll try and do my best dramatic voice to uh, to give this this masterpiece of advertising. 
the uh, the grandeur that it deserves. Are you ready? Mm. The hardest thing to cope with has been years spent away from his own children while fighting the family court. He had a gorgeous home, a zoo, and a Bentley in the garage, yet he had nothing. How had this happened? And how could he ever regain his children who were the love of his life? Nine Lives is such a roller coaster ride that you might expect to find it in the fiction section of the bookstore. Yet every event here actually happened for real. These events would have killed lesser men, but David S. Gill is a survivor, and he is still surviving to tell the tale. A tale you must read to believe. Um, I hope I did that justice. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you'd read it a bit slower, it probably would have been more accurate, you know. Every event here actually happened for real. The <laughs> nine-year-old's writing. Yeah, it's the word. The, the, the events is repeated so much. Is like when you're learning like creative writing, like GCSE level. It's don't keep repeating words in sentences yeah. unless it's part of a very deliberate right. thematic approach, which I do not feel this is. No. Microsoft Word has a button to do synonyms. You don't <laughs> even need to try. It's so lazy, you know. This is so dangerous. You won't believe it's true. Like, I, I half expected to end up with, like, any woke up and it was all a dream, such as, like, the level of writing on I mean, to be here. honest, Georgie, I'm really hoping the Gill story ends like that because it means a lot of very unpleasant things have not happened. So, yeah, I mean, it is, we've been saying, you know, from the off, and, you know, for the listeners, Geordie hasn't read ahead. He's got a loose, you know, idea of what Gill's been, but he doesn't know a lot of the details of the plot. So the plot, this is, this is not... God, he's got me thinking about this is a this is too you know too strange for reality. But <laughs> so when we were talking about you know that sort of imperialized version of, of masculinity of of the sort of man master of nature of the Edgar Rice Burroughs of the H. Ryder Haggard, you know, you didn't know this book existed, did you, until the end of last week's episode when I gave you a little glimpse of what was coming up? Yeah, I, I had no idea that you know he would do sort of all the things he'd done. And the goatee would be to write a book about it. That that self-image, this is clearly how he wants to be seen. This adventure. Oh, ab- absolutely, yeah, you know. He'd probably want a river named after him, things like that. I feel, I, whilst I would not trust anything in the book to be factual, unless I could verify it by other sources, I feel it would be invaluable in understanding how he sees himself, or at least how he wants the world to see him. You know, because you think all autobiographies are that to an extension. The more honest ones, people can laugh at themselves or, you know, sort of expose some of their foibles and sort of use that to to sort of justify uh, things that they've done. Like Alistair Campbell's, um, I, I, I disagree with quite a few of the things Alistair Campbell did while he was in power. But, you know, he, he is, his book is sort of very brutally honest about the... Yeah. the difficulties he had. And I'm not saying that explains or forgives, but it, you know, it is quite uncompromising in uh, explaining what he was going through. And it, it's not this sort of glossy, I did everything right and I'm perfect and you're not. And I feel that, you know, I, again, when we read it, we'll, we'll probably get, you know, we'll get more of a picture, but just that blurb of he's a man of action, a man of adventure, but he loves his kids and he loves shagging. He's, he's just a great bloke all around, isn't he? He's what everyone wants to be. And that is the thing, it's that dichotomy, isn't it? He wants to be seen as the great dad, but he's also, you know, this you know, free and easy playboy with the zoo and the sports car. Mm. Well, I think he really wants to be, like, the embodiment of the phrase, like, you know, 
men want to be him, women want to be with him. I, I don't know. And even that little sort of attempt at humility, yet he had nothing. How has this happened? It might, you know, it, it's the unspoken. How has this happened to him? Yeah, exactly. Like what, what forces have conspired against him? Because he didn't deserve it, says the subject. No, no. Like, if he was just left alone, you know, he'd be doing fantastically. It can only be, you know, malign forces. Otherwise known as women. <laughs> Health and safety regulation. Yeah, people wanting to think these large, dangerous animals you have, David. Do do you think you should be doing more to restrain them? Moving down a little bit to which I know you are very excited to know what's about to come next, <laughs> because the reviews are almost exclusively one or five stars, with my personal favourite uh, including Gil being described as Walter Mitty trying to be Steve Irwin. Fantastic. And, oh, even better. Egotistical man of no experience of wild animals decides to build a zoo. What could possibly go wrong? Which I think would probably work as an alternative title for this podcast. Yeah, I mean, that is really impressive trying to sum him up. You know, quick, snappy. Um, That guy on as a guest. In his defence, he worked with animal food. That seems like, you know, plenty of experience. But yeah, what could possibly go wrong? I mean... I don't think I would have imagined it would have gone as wrong as it did, though. I mean, that's essentially... I would have thought, you know... I was thinking about this the other day. I I sold the food and now I I can keep them. That's a bit like me going, that summer when I was 16, where part of my part-time job involved preparing sandwiches, off the back of that, I can now be a doctor. You know, (laughs) I put the food into people. I now should be responsible for their care. (laughs) Oh, There's, you know, you talk about transferable skills a lot. But I don't think feed salesman, you know, but what he's, I imagine, like a very good salesman, but that's just not a critical skill for running a zoo. Or at least, you know, if for running a zoo, it may have, it may help to be a salesperson to raise yeah. funds. But, you know, it's not a critical skill for like the care specifically of the animals. Well, I've sort of done a bit of, a, sort of reading into the, I think I mentioned the last episode, you know, we were intending this to be a, a bigger history of irresponsible animal ownership. But looking back to sort of the, the Georgian era and even beforehand when you know exotic animals really started to become more uh, common in in England and in London particularly you know with the growth of empire and the growth of trade that these creatures started finding their way back again and again the people who were successful were showmen first and foremost you know charismatic individuals who understood how to drive a crowd and animal welfare was there to the extent that they needed to keep these things alive and sort of in a condition where people would want to see them but you know in many ways he's sort of following a tradition in that yeah I completely agree with you you know unfortunately it's made one of those traditions that needed to be left behind a hundred years ago there's there's stories of the uh, some of the menageries in London I think there was there was one in the Strand it's called the change I'm sure the the Strand exchange I think Um, but again you know the stories of the, the people there sort of you know signs outside to advertise new animals and brightly colored waistcoats and hiring you know promoters to go out into the street you know there's even a story of, of someone who showed a leopard off around pubs and was only stopped when it essentially ripped a woman's arm off after she tried to give it a pet so you think yeah. he has got these sort of spiritual predecessors oh it's absolutely you know a story as old as time sort of you know charismatic person dabbling in dangerous ultimately goes wrong it's yeah. just at least, you know, in modern times, we've got great Amazon reviews about it. 
Well, speaking of the Amazon reviews, they were just the tip of the iceberg. So other negative comments included someone saying they were a former member of staff and venting their spleen that she thinks the man is a liar. Can't argue with her. Uh, and yeah, several, yeah, several describing how so much of the content is the work of a self-aggrandizing braggart who attempts not only to portray himself as a great conservationist, but also an incredible father who has almost single-handedly reared his children in the face of wrongful state interference. Of course, it's I mean, the fault yeah. of the state. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it all comes back to that bloody state interference, you know, putting minimum standards. Health and safety gone mad. What do you mean my children have to see their mother? What do you mean I need to lock the gates on the pens? I mean, people use that sort of, you know, the term like nanny state and things like state interference. They use it to make, advocate for some quite extreme deregulation. And you think, yes, you you know, there are cases where common sense should prevail. I'm not saying that every yeah. state directive is perfect. And no, absolutely not. But maybe, you know, not allowing your employees to die well, is, is an OK state regulation. You know, risk is good. There are activities that I enjoy that have an element of risk. But it is an informed risk that myself and the other participants, you know, should there be any, are aware of. You know, I drink alcohol. I'm aware that, um, you know, drinking drinking alcohol has... Um, has got sort of negative effects, but I'm aware of that and I choose to do it anyway. You know, uh, I used to smoke. Um, again, I was aware of the, the risks of tobacco, but it was it was a stupid choice, but it was a choice that I made as an informed it, it's choice. It's certainly not tied to your employment either. That sort of thing, working in a job where you assume that there is safety, it, it's just, you know, if I'm working in a building that has a lift, I assume that lift is being maintained properly. And if it is not, that that lift will be closed and I will have to take the stairs. That is not an unfair assumption on my part as an individual. And getting in a lift which is not being properly maintained is an uninformed risk that I am taking. And that is where I think that that is where, you know, this this health and safety comes in. It's not always perfect. It can be a bit silly. It can be a bit preachy. But it very much needs to be there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the people preaching are people like him who stand to benefit because of the the cost savings in being able to um, just do yeah, whatever I, they I feel mean, like. I would assume he was doing it in bad faith anyway, just due to the fact if he's, it would make a profit from reducing health and safety. So I wouldn't exactly presume he was coming at it, you know, with good intentions for a healthy debate. I very rarely find good intentions in the actions of his that I've encountered whilst researching. Yeah. I mean, we do often keep set on these individual events if you were giving him the benefit of the doubt you know it may not be so bad but we've just seen you know a massive pile on of events and you know the benefit of the doubt only goes so far and I, he's more than used that up I mean, well, we're, we're three episodes, episodes in i feel by episode three you know the benefit of the doubt has gone yeah <laughs> if you're still leaning on the benefit of the doubt this would be a short series if it would be david gill let a rhino loose could have gone either way that was it you know <laughs> we wouldn't have written yes. this unfortunate tragedy of one-off yeah when we're a few hours in it it's completely different man may have fucked up jury still out it's not a show in that i mean yeah and as we've seen today the jury was very much not out no the jury was very much ruling against him because he's a bad person coming on to uh two of the most potentially incendiary amazon comments 
as we've just heard, you know, there's a reference to this, uh, he, how he's an incredible dad and he's, he's, you know, the state was stopping him and he just wanted to raise his kids and be a good dad, you know. An attempt to refute this comes from a user calling herself Alison, who says she is the mother of one of these children, meaning, if this is genuine, this would be his first wife. So just remember, the one who he's left for Shelley Goodwin when Goodwin was a teenager, the one who was with him when he founded the zoo and started setting things up. Yeah, this is big. You know, unfortunately, we'll never be able to verify it. So yeah, and everyone just for, needs to take this with a pinch of salt. Well, exactly. And for clarity as well, this is not what we say. Not if she is who she says she is. She is not Alison Creary, the wife of the uh, the former Barrow player. Um, a different woman called Alison, the the original sort of wife number one. Again, if that is who she says she is, uh, I was dubious over including this. I think. It is an interesting point worth reviewing, so I've left it in. But I think, again, as Georgia says, we cannot verify the veracity of this individual. It's very much up to you as the listener to make your mind up to this. But I don't want to uh, you know, be presenting this as pure, indisputable fact. We can all have a good laugh over it, though. Either way, that's allowed. Yeah. Well, you say a good laugh. It, I promise that the harrowing bits are over. This kind of starts leaning back towards them. My opinion, after reading David's book and all of the comments on this page, I find it appalling that people can comment on personal issues that they know nothing about. Innocent children are involved in this situation who have two parents. All of the comments are gained from only one parent's perspective. Think how the other feels. Being betrayed, lied to, and discovering that another woman is pregnant at the same time. These children have fantastic opportunities and a wonderful knowledge of animals and being involved with them. Also travel opportunities. Please, before you believe everything that is written in black and white, take a while to think about the effect on the families in the background. Ask yourself, would family court be involved if not necessary? David has wrote that he brought up Indy single-handed. I am Indy's mum and can say a hand on heart that I never gave up on my son. He was kept from me, resulting in me having to spend in excess of £20,000 in court to obtain time with my son. I have other children who unfortunately are old enough to read this book and they have lived through tough times of being kept from their brother for long periods, which has devastated us all. I have kept from my story to protect my children and my family and think Mr. Gill should have kept his private affairs from print. Alison. Scathing, well-written, you know, better than the blurb. Yeah, I mean, you know, out, out of the two, this is actually coherent. It has a point. It goes. It has a clear beginning and an end. It doesn't it, sound like I the insane ramblings of a twelve-year-old. Like I said, yeah, we can't verify who it was, but I could confidently guess that they were an adult. Yeah, yeah. Which I couldn't do about the author of the book. Yeah, and um, like we said, we we don't know who it is. We do know his son is called Indy, and uh, I'm going to ask you, Geordie. We've got a bit more about this in a later episode. Do you want to guess what Indy's short for? Is it India? No, it's not. Um, short for Indiana. Indigenous? Indiana. Oh, of course. Now, I of think you course. can see where this is going. <laughs> the adventurer, son. Well, another source, which again cannot be proven, alleges that David Gill for Indiana Jones was a real man. No. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. You've got the great explorers of the time, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, going down the River of Doubt. Then you've got Indiana Jones, he's up there with them. Oh, the dear. Temple of Doom, the River of Doubt, and the <laughs> Temple of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I feel so sorry for that child. Yeah, as I said, we don't know that's why, but... Indiana's a bit rough, obviously, because of the associations to Indiana Jones. Uh, I just reckon if every time Gil does something reckless, the theme music just starts playing in his head. Almost certainly. <laughs> Absolutely almost certain. Firing gun. It wouldn't surprise me if he had a whip. Like, absolutely not. Oh, yeah. And not for professional purposes either. Just for that. No, going around the whip. The only thing that makes me think he doesn't is I feel like he would have whipped someone by this point in public. He wouldn't have been able to help himself. He strikes me as a man who would have whipped things frequently. Maybe it's just like private whipping. Like, he's got a barn where he just whips stuff and then gets it out of his system. Do you think he's embarrassed about the size of his whip? I mean, I think if I was him, I'd be more embarrassed about the size of my legal fees, but, you know. Yeah. That's not one to brag about. Certainly not put it on the Tinder profile. Oh, God. And you know he does. David Gill, age range, 18 to 22. (laughs) Oh, God. I really hope he's not on Tinder. (laughs) I do think he is currently married. We'll get on to that. And um, in in all fairness to him, the, the current wife does seem to, he does seem to found the one. I mean, it and I say that into far, that, you know, she just think what David Gill's dream woman is like. <laughs> yeah. Not so, great. Yeah. You know, but, you know, fair play does seem to settle down that regard. Now, there is one last Amazon review that we must examine. With this one is choice of cover art drew Iyer from the from a user calling themselves Martin. They wrote, I visited the park several times with mixed opinions of how it is run, but fell in love with the tiger cub picture on the front of the cover. Cardi, the cub in question, is no longer at the park, and it would appear that she did in fact die at the park in less than ideal circumstances. And Mr. Gill covered up this incident by saying she moved zoos. This is highly deceptive, especially to people like myself, who donated our hard-earned cash to adopt the poor little creature. And they've reviewed it three stars. So despite the tiger death... Yeah. That's <laughs> very generous, considering it sounds like you hate them. Good yeah, read, mate. Good, good read, mate. So, sad about the baby tiger, but, you know, gripping passages. Is Martin 12 and was just happy it was written in words he could understand? I, I don't know. I think Martin, from, from context, because um, he's referred to in a Daily Mail article as well, and the implication is Martin is sort of a grown man who was trying to be fair-minded. So I think they pushed impartial maybe too far. Yeah, I mean, you he's calling a man out for for dead tigers in a public forum. So I think he's, his heart is very much in the right place. If anything, yeah, he's oh, probably too much of yeah. a nice bloke. Oh, yeah, I think yeah, he's clearly a very nice man that fell in love with this cub. He's sharing that the cub's dead on an online forum. Just can't bring himself to give a one-star review. <laughs> God, I mean... Like three stars, that's better than half. Yeah. <laughs> what would it have taken for Martin to have given a one star? <laughs> to be given the cub and then have it shot in front of him, I guess. When I went to the zoo cafe, David Gill was liquidising a guinea pig. <laughs> I was offered like, a smoothied version of Cardi. Martin's fee has proved to be well-founded, with both the Sunday Times and the Daily Mail confirming in 2017 that Cardi had indeed died in 2012. She'd become immensely popular when images emerged of her being bottle-fed after rejection by her mother, but that was in 2010. By 2012, she was no longer cute and cuddly and a little bundle of fluff, and by having her own enclosure, was taking up space that could have been given to a new attraction. 
Cardi was moved back in with the parents who had rejected her and was duly attacked, killed and eaten. God. I mean, yeah. you see that so much. Like, they buy them as cubs because cubs are cute and they're not prepared for when they're adults. Well, I've heard um, that tigers stop being safe to have around you, as in interact and sort of play with at about between 10 to 12 months of it can vary a bit depending on the individual cat and i've heard different things but from sort of a bit of reading i've done and people i've spoken to know more about this than me they say that that is about the point when it's coming up to a year it's it's not safe um it's getting very big and strong at that point and also it just looks like a slightly smaller tiger it's not got the fluffiness and the yeah it's not got that appeal but to people but and it's also potentially dangerous and, you know, animal introductions take time as well. And to be fair, again, I don't know what the introduction process was like, but I know when done properly, it can take place over a long period of time. Uh, and there are processes. And one of the things that you do is if you're introducing a larger animal and a smaller animal, you put the larger animal in the smaller animal's pen. So it feels a little off its bearings and isn't quite as aggressive and dominant. Yeah. And you're thinking, if I know that, a man who essentially knows nothing, full-time animal professional, allegedly David Gill, you know, you know what yeah. I mean, putting it into the pen of the parents, you but, think that it's an intruder on their territory. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he knows. I, he just doesn't care. He's, that's interesting, because I'm not sure he does know, because um, he does seem very much sort of a shoe expert opinion. He knows best in his head, unquestionably. Mm. And nothing that you, with, you know, you're actually having bothered to study zoology or animal management or any of the actual sort of skill sets that a difficult and dangerous profession should take. Or, you know, maybe you've you've worked, you maybe don't have academic qualifications, but you've worked on a, a reserve or you've, you've worked your way up from being an apprentice zookeeper, but you've got genuine knowledge. Mr. Animal Feed Salesman 2009 does not care. No, stops no, having fun and doing better. things the way he wants to do things. Yeah, and indeed, there's sort of this prevailing opinion that it'll all work out because I'm involved. Just want to wear my safari hat, run around with a gun, and you know, rush into things and be the hero and be in the newspaper for being, you know, handsome and charming, rather than you know, negligent to the point of death, animal murdering. Yeah, David Gilt, real piece of shit. Yes, it's scum. Again, you know, two other alternative titles. Part three, this man is scum. <laughs> real, you know, real arsehole. Listen to find out why. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to Cardi, there are less than a thousand Sumatran tigers on the planet and the subspecies is considered critically endangered, making the death of Cardi as ecologically damaging as it was needlessly tragic. Now, going back a bit, one keeper who was apparently very upset by these events was Sarah McClay, who had broken the unforced omerta that Gill had put on the staff and told her partner what had happened. There was a real leaning on it by all accounts of, you know, this doesn't leave the zoo. Yeah. What's the reason he was able to do this was Gill taking advantage of a rule stating that zoos are not obliged to declare animal deaths publicly. So you'd have to let, you know, the international stud book know that, you know, this tiger is no longer a breeding option because she has passed away. But okay. you don't have to put a sign out to the public. So as long as the people who keep, you know, the genetic records are updated and sort of run the various breeding programs for captive animals, there's no obligation to uh, to share that information outside of those organisations. 
no and you're allowed to just you know be disingenuous about what's happened to the animal Pretty much. I mean, in this case, uh, Gil contain, uh, continued to maintain the narrative that Cardia transferred to a different zoo. As lies go, it was barely a step above saying that she was at a farm in the country with lots of space and other tigers to play with. <laughs> and just to round out this little episode, when asked by the Times to confirm what had happened, and this was a phone call, uh, Gil at first told them to fuck off before admitting that the tiger was indeed dead. Oh, that's brilliant. He couldn't even maintain his, like, anger. <laughs> He's, you know, really defiant at first. Drop for a man who hates authority, he seems to cave quite a lot. Like, I can imagine his head is, I'm going to tell them where to, you know, go stick their interview. But, you know, it didn't take long for him to cave and just admit that the tiger was dead. Fuck off. But, yeah, in all fairness, I did kill that tiger. Yeah, like, I, I don't, you know, I, I said it in the heat of the moment, I'll be honest with you, the, the tiger's gone. I'm not angry at you, really. I'm angry at myself, but I can't articulate it properly. I mean, I think that's abundantly clear. He can't articulate things properly. Oh, just wait till you see, you know, his Facebook status is, my God. It's like someone sneezed on a Scrabble board. Oh, yeah. And, you know, again, I'm not mocking people with learning difficulties or bad spelling. I'm mocking David Gill. He is a thoroughly repellent individual. And uh, I say laughing at him for pretty much any reason will go. Now, the controversy around the book was added to with some off-page drama between Gill and his ghostwriter, a gentleman named Paul Stenning. Even when paying someone to write a book for you, Gill finds a way to have an argument. (laughs) Yeah, he's a very cantankerous little man, isn't he? Just employing someone and he's still going to have issues with you. Well, I think it might come from that, because when you look at this man's profile, Stenning's a prolific author who's written on a variety of subjects, including music, sports and true crime, as well as producing his own poetry. He's worked with figures as diverse as Amanda Knox, DJ Jazzy Jeff, Frank Abagnale, he was the con man who Catch Me If You Can was based on, and Roy Chubby Brown. So real sweep across the spectrum. Um, Yeah, like he's seen a bit of everything. Yeah, and you, you know, you think DJ Jazzy Jeff hugely successful Roy Chubby Brown really not my taste in comedy um but you know you can't deny the man's built up a certain cult following uh Amanda Knox I mean you know that case was dominated headlines and I think said a lot about our society's treatment of women and of the presumption of innocence and presumption of guilt so fascinating stories for him to be to be dealing with and as a result of this it is unlikely he would have been in awe of or easily manipulated by a two-bit zoo owner Nevertheless, it appears that Stenning uh, did his best to remain professional, and judging on the level of literacy displayed by Gill in anything I've seen written by him, it was largely down to Stenning that a readable work was produced. A notable difference between the two of them is that Stenning is a staunch animal rights advocate, and it was due to these beliefs that he felt rather uncomfortable with some of what Gill had to say. In particular, his dealings at Mariba eight years previously raised some concerns. So, yeah, staunch animal rights advocate meets David Gill. I mean, you can see why they yeah. fell out. I mean, yeah, why would you, if he's obviously, you know, quite a public animal rights activist, why would you even go near him? One of the things about South Lakes, and he, he references in the book apparently quite a lot, is there were these conservation projects around the world. Uh, I remember when I was there, they had a lot about um, a, I think it was uh, one of the Indonesian islands, either Sumatra or Borneo, a tiger sort of facility there for you know sort of observing them in the wild and funding rangers stop poaching efforts I, I don't know how legitimate it was or not but it was clearly an image 
that Gil very much wanted to project was it, this isn't just some menagerie, you know, I'm a conservationist and animal lover. And I don't know whether part of the fun was traveling to these exotic locations, but I can see how, in this particular, this was pre Maclay. Okay. Uh, I can see how, well, like we, like we said, some of these incidents can be passed off as, oh, that was just bad luck. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Gil is used to telling people that he still people seem to have bought it. Why wouldn't this bloke buy it? No, no, exactly. Like, like we said, he's a salesman, but you know, he's just moved on from animal feed to himself. Absolutely. In particular, it was his dealings at Mariba eight years previously that had raised some concerns. As we've established, the project fast fell into chaos, but before his departure to the UK, David saw an opportunity to recoup some of the costs that he had sunk into the venture. Although he had failed to get the requisite permits and the land was not particularly valuable, he did have some saleable assets, namely the large herds of deer and buffalo on the premises. You know, good ethical zoo ownership. Yeah, I can, you know, I can see the only a few reasons why you'd be able to so quickly offload a load of buffalo and deer. Well, I wouldn't object to a farmer doing this because a farmer is honest. You know, yeah. a farmer buys animals and raises them for slaughter, and whether you think that is right or wrong, and again, there are there are arguments to be had over our meat consumption as a culture. The farmer is is very open about the fact is I buy these animals, I raise them, and I kill them. Yeah, you know, they are upfront about what they do. You know, even if you hate them and think they're wrong, at least you know they're an honest foe for you. This is just the disingenuity of it. It's a uh, Staggering. So up to as many as 2,500 animals were sold to a hunting ranch, with the buffalo alone supposedly selling for £300,000. We know that the uh, the scimitar-horned oryx ended up on a ranch because one of them was shot by uh, Bob Neora, a cat as son-in-law. I don't know if it was the same ranch. The article I was reading didn't specify whether it was the, the same facility. So it might have been, might not have been, but... It's a very gill thing to do, isn't it? Complete disregard. Oh, I'm, I'm running away from this country, essentially. I will offload all these animals, you know, but still call me a conservationist, please. And he's, you know, he's, he's hit that 10 grand fine for the cheetah getting loose. Does need to cover that. Yeah, I mean, really, yeah, he's made quite a profit. That, that's the thing about these fines, which is, you know, makes me think they're not enough. Like you hear about, you know, the £150,000 here, you know, the 10 grand there, whatever. But, you know, he's easily just flipped um, well, some buffalo and made the compensation pounds. fee to the Maclays was two hundred ninety-seven thousand five hundred. The buffalo were three hundred thousand. Yeah, so it, you can quite easily get the money together if necessary. Like I said, I think it was still a big enough sum that you know he couldn't just shrug it off. But it's no, not no, crippled absolutely him. not. Yeah, it, it, it's not like the ultimate deterrent. You know, there is a real chance he'd do it again. It's like a few thousand for you or me. You know what I mean? Like, it's a lot yeah. of money. It wouldn't ruin us for life. That, and that's the thing. You think the kind of things he's done. I'm not saying I want a man to be financially ruined, but I think when you're doing the things he's doing, you, you need, you know, ruining people's lives, ruining people's financials. There needs to be some sort of more permanent consequences. Yeah, so at least lasting. Or is it something that'll make him think twice? I've seen the argument that any offence pub, uh, you know, punishable by a fine is essentially an offence which is uh, only illegal for the poor. Yeah, I, I mean, I do agree with that, yeah. And yeah, I think, yeah. you know, the fact he does continuously get away with these things 
almost vindicates that opinion. I mean, going back to uh, what we were saying, David decided to maintain what was by now a tradition and did not see the need to burden the public with the truth. Stenning recalls how, and this was a, in a, from an article in The Sun, uh, he told me about the sale and said, we don't necessarily have to say it was a gaming ranch, do we? I just looked at him. I can't understand how a conservationist allows animals to go to a hunting lodge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, he said it very succinctly. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I, I mean, what more can we say, really? Yeah, it, everything, the labels he uses to self-describe, he doesn't mean anything. It's all an image he's looking to project. Like, I don't think he stands for anything. Much like when he ran for an MP, he takes the title of conservative, he takes the title of conservationist, and he drops it when it's no longer convenient. I mean, that's the thing, you know, some of his views are loosely conservative, but I don't think, you know, he could have articulated policy no. to any meaningful level. You know, other than no, no, I no. get to do what I want, and I don't think I should have to pay taxes or st- adhere to standards for safety. Yeah, I don't want this local council to be able to stop me expanding my zoo as dangerously as I'd like. Vote Gill. You know, tigers <laughs> in the streets. They may not start Bigger, in the streets, but they will, get, they will get there. <laughs> and then I'll shoot them. I mean, I'll teach the local police officers how to shoot them. God. Once again, we are going back to the Tiger King comparisons, and you've got Joe Exotic, this this charismatic figure talking about his love of animals and bottle feeding the cubs in his own home. But then, you know, he's, he's flogging them to anybody of a few quid. Mm. And two men who have, on the face of it, very little in common other than their ownership of zoos, these dangerous patterns of behaviour, the the commoditization of the animals that are supposed to be in their care and protection. And again, you know, I think it is different to a wild herd, which, you know, needs culling anyway, so you sell some hunting licences. Again, there are moral arguments for and against it, but to me it's very, very different to acquiring these creatures under the pretense of conservationism. Yeah, only to offload them when you need to do a run-up on the country. Well, I know that uh, BIAs a day in particular, and I think some more global bodies as well, have a very dim view of the exchange of animals for cash, particularly anything that could be described as an exotic species. So the buffalo mm. in particular would, would come under that brand of so Indian water buffalo. I know they're in sort of the Indian subcontinent domesticated, but I just don't think something like that, which is an animal which you wouldn't want any random member of the public owning, should have a cash value. No, no. You know, you can buy things at the supermarket with cash. Maybe, you know, animals, exotic animals. Maybe that's not the best idea. Yeah. And I I just feel, you know, again, it is. It's grubby. And I feel that that's sort yeah. of a, a description of a lot of the things that he does that sort of things feel tainted by his involvement in them. Yeah, it does. Nothing sits well when he does when he gets involved. So, as we mentioned, the Tiger King comparisons abound. And if you're wondering how David would feel about the numerous parallels I've drawn between him and Joe Exotic, it's likely he'd be very unhappy. The reason for this is that he's something of a homophobe. They're always a homophobe, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, we we saw this one coming, didn't we? Yeah. You know, from the description about him, I wouldn't be shocked. On Facebook, in March 2014, David Gill wrote, Oh, he's opened this in such a good way. It's classics of angry letters to the mail. Am I on my own in feeling so disgusted at same-sex marriage? Keep it off my TV and out of my sight. 
I mean, yeah. Well, just what a prank, quite frankly. <laughs> just what, you know, a self-absorbed arsehole. Interesting that he feels that two people in a loving and committed relationship is somehow morally inferior to allowing a woman to die through negligence, throwing an animal in with parents that abandoned it to its in- inevitable death, shooting a rhinoceros out of a sense of personal vanity, despite there being a police marksman present and the fact that it's loose is entirely your fault, letting a lemur house burn down to the ground, shagging a teenager uh, whilst you're married. Yeah. You want me I to mean, carry exactly. on? Like... Yeah. I mean, he has such a loose definition of marriage himself. I don't know why he thinks, you know, same-sex marriage waters down the institution. Yeah, I mean, I again, I would go back to hitting on your teenage employee. Yeah. Does a lot more damage to the institution of marriage. I think, once again, with a lot of people out there, you know, he's so far up his own arse, he can't conceive, like, the idea of being gay because, like, it's so far away from what he'd do. And because he's the best, if you're not like him, you know, he's just not good. And I think, you know, sort of people talk about heteronormative, heteronormative worldviews. I think he goes beyond sort of heteronormative into this sort of almost performative masculinity. Yeah, a lot of it with these people are, you know, I know the classic, oh, they're insecure. I'm not even sure it's necessarily that. In fact, I actually, I don't think it's insecurity. I just think, you know, he likes the idea of showing off to, you know, everyone about how much of a man he is. I don't know what you think about this. It's a bit of an aside, but that sort of line of when someone's being homophobic and go, oh, they're probably gay and insecure about it. I feel it's almost quite insulting because, you know, it's implying like, oh, they've got this bad thing to feel insecure about, so they act out. I'm like, that's... And also, they might just be a horrible bigot who's also solely interested in the opposite sex. Well, exactly, yeah. You know, when someone's racist, it's not, oh, they're they're secretly... Uh, like black for example you know they're just some people are just bigots and that but and I think yeah, there's the also that, sort of that implication that being gay or bisexual or whatever else is something to be ashamed of and that's that's an explanation for this behavior and i think we, you know i think we let people off far too easily with that as a you know as a as, a, as an excuse for why they're saying and doing these things yeah we're not people to excuse david gill where people are quite happily say he's an arsewipe. We're people to commit our free time to writing and recording a podcast. <laughs> Shaming <laughs> David Kill. <laughs> we are nothing if not petty. <laughs> he, he's made us like this. We weren't like this always. <laughs> I had a vague half memory and the hatred gripped me. <laughs> it's just an added bonus when you know you feel really vindicated and you come to the end of the story. They're also a homophobe. Yeah, I mean, in, in the interest of, sort of full disclosure, particularly when I was young, I said stuff that looking back now I cringe at because it was definitely homophobic. But I think there does come a point when, and I think 2014 was hugely important for sort of normalising same-sex relationships in, in sort of both with obviously the legislation that passed and, um, you know, also more representation on screen time. And, uh, you know... I'm, I'm not proud of that. I like to feel those those aren't my values now, but that you could definitely find instances of me referring to stuff as gay or Ben. And, you know, I, I'm not happy about that, but I have tried to reflect through my actions um, that that is not the person I am anymore. And that that is not sort of the values that I hold. So, you know, you can you can make 
excuses or you can just as as I'm trying to do probably quite clumsily just sort of fess up and go I really got that one wrong and I'm very very sorry yeah. to anybody who's you know been affected by that and I feel you you know we all make mistakes and it was partially the culture I was in but ultimately there comes a point where you need to take personal responsibility for the choices you made um uh, I don't it you know, if this was, I don't know, even 15 years prior and, you know, he'd said nothing since, you know, it'd be a different story. I think, you know, quite clearly, though, March 2014, like you said, that's, it. we're too late in the day to be saying, you know, it, he's a man of his time. Well, it's directly correlated. I, I double checked the dates and it's when the first same-sex marriages were taking place in the UK after the Equal Marriage uh, Act was passed. One of Cameron sort of flagship policies and perhaps the thing i agree most with his time in office um, yeah as, as, yeah, sort of, exactly. as a positive yeah. legacy for his premiership so it was clearly it wasn't just a sort of passing moment of rage i, I think he's i'm getting the impression he's maybe watching the news or something and saw sort of being reported on and it just started raging yeah not a pleasant man to some i mean not even just about this to sum up the past three episodes not a pleasant man on every conceivable level and the lack of, you know, any repentance or remorse for the things he does is what really leaps out at me. Because, again, like we said, if it was just a series of awful mistakes and each time he was genuinely contrite, you still think there is no way this bloke should be running a zoo. Mm. But when they keep happening and you don't think, I, I'm in over my head here, you know, I need to, I need to stop doing this because people are getting hurt. But it's just that blind dogged faith in his own clearly very limited abilities yeah once again you know just a real self-obsession you know and self-belief to the most extreme extent well you know what they say have the confidence of a mediocre white man and as a yeah. mediocre white man i can confirm it is fucking great <laughs> at least you don't run a terrible terrible zoo. give me time give me time and give me podcast money and the Patreon is out there, people. I expect you to subscribe. Now, perhaps rage at this was providing, was proving time-consuming for Gill, because it appears that from around this point, what was already an institution with serious animal welfare concerns begun to descend into a hellscape of mismanagement and malnutrition. And that's us wrapped up for uh, for this episode. So, Geordie, what are your thoughts on what you've heard today? I'm sadder. A lot sadder. I guess it, it got funnier you know, at the midpoint. But yeah, you know, what a terrible, terrible series of events. Yeah, we're going to be going on again in the next week and looking to sort of when the zoo really went off the rails because previously we've had just sort of headline-grabbing incidents of this broke loose, this happened, this this horrible incident with Sarah happened, the um, Lara Kitson previously of the Employment Tribunal, but they were, a big thing would go wrong, giving the impression that everything's ticking over and incidents kick off what we're going to start to see is a pattern which most of the evidence I've found is from the early 2010s onwards. There are some inclinations that it may have happened previously, but as far as I can tell, it does really appear that sort of 2013, 2014, 2015 is when things really begun to nosedive. And it was just a continual bleak landscape of failure across the board on a number of duties of care. Yeah. Bear, with that cheerful message in mind for uh, for next week, please do remember to like and subscribe. Uh, keep tuned in. You know, I'm sure that everybody really wants to find out what's happened. If your life's just going too well at the moment and you're too happy, 
listen to us. We'll bring you right back down. Keep you nice and leveled out. Yeah, please go out for a walk or something. Do something to cheer yourselves up. Find someone you love and hug them. <laughs> Spend some time with a dog. And resist the urge to shoot or starve it. Yeah, try not to think about, you know, the other animals that didn't make it. So, Geordie, anything you want to plug, promote? It doesn't have to be uh, something that you're doing, just anything that you particularly like and think people should be involved in. I mean, please maybe look at real animal conservationists and see if you can help them out in any way. Yeah. Uh, do some background research, though, because apparently they do masquerade. I feel that is a very good message to, uh, to take away from this. Well, um, look, I've, uh, I've been James Barker. So, Geordie Paul has joined me. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners. As ever, immensely grateful for your, uh, for your support, for your time. Do remember to join us next week when we'll be looking at part four. The working title is Casual Vetting and Supermarket Sweeps. So uh, plenty for you to look forward to on that. And uh, thank you and goodbye.